Веселі брати часи настали, нове майбутнє дарує день. Чому ж на небі так мало сонця стало, чому я далі пишу сумних пісень? Чому ж на небі так мало сонця стало, чому я далі пишу сумних пісень? Веселі брати, часи настали, ми наближаємось до мети. Чому ж тоді я шукаю іншу стежку, чому я далі з ними не хочу йти? Чому ж тоді я шукаю іншу стежку, чому я далі з ними не хочу йти? Часи настали, на грудях світить нам слави знак. Нам очі ніжно закрили, губи медом змастили, душу кинули просто так. Нам очі ніжно закрили, губи медом змастили, душу кинули просто так. Душа покинулась та й питає. Сама у себе чому одна Не має в кошти тати золото Залістата замість мами глуха стіна Не має в кошти тати золото Залістата замість мами глуха стіна Стало, кудись поділися голоси, часи веселі настали, нас лишилось так мало, ну і брати такі часи. Часи веселі настали, нас лишилось так мало, ну і брати такі часи. And Sviatoslav Vakarichuk with the group Okean Elze and a song released back in 2010 with um, a rather sarcastic title, sort of the history of Ukraine, at least uh, in the 20th century. And so it merits some sarcasm. Vaseli Chase, Happy Times. Vitaya vas vsih dorehi radio suhachi na radio programu nash holos radio krinskoho kurinya. Primikrofoni pavina makwari, diaku yushurishla perbutazim noyu nastuknu hadenu. Hello there and welcome to Nasholos Ukrainian Roots Radio. I'm your host, Paulette Demchik Makwari, Pokrinske Pavlina, and I'm delighted to have you with me for this next hour. On the last Saturday of November, Ukrainians around the world commemorate the Holodomor by lighting a candle, and they invite the rest of the world to join them. In 1932 and 33, an evil regime, housed in the Kremlin but with treacherous agents everywhere, deliberately starved to death millions of Ukrainians in its quest to create a communist utopia. The Holodomor took place in 1932 and 33 in what had been known as the breadbasket of Europe. Despite a record harvest, some 7 to 10 million Ukrainians starved to death on orders by Stalin. Communist government authorities confiscated crops, farm animals, anything and everything edible in household cupboards and cellars of villagers throughout Ukraine. Entire villages perished. 
Their homes and belongings were later appropriated by ethnic Russians and others brought in by the communist government to resettle the depopulated Ukrainian villages. This genocidal famine was covered up for decades by the Soviet government and its apologists around the world. These apologists included Western politicians, academics, corporations, entertainers, and the media. Some, to this day, continue to deny the Holodomor happened. Fortunately, it is not so easy now to cover it up. On the last Saturday of November, Ukrainians around the world honor the memory of those who perished. Today's program will honor the victims of the Holodomor, as well as those of the current regime in the Kremlin, which is carrying on the treacherous traditions of its predecessors. Today's show will feature encore presentations of timeless messages on this theme. We'll also have our usual proverb of the week and other items of interest. Our music will focus on the Holodomor. Up next, Ludwig of London, England, with his original composition, which he wrote to tell the world the story of Holodomor. Land of plenty, please tell me if it's true. Land of plenty, what did they do to you? Land of plenty, they stripped your wheat fields bare. Land of plenty, as if you were not there. Land of plenty, they stripped your wheat fields bare. Land of plenty, as if you were not there. Land of plenty, your people lived off you. But it started in 1932 Land of plenty Your people you could feed But that year you Were robbed for foreign greed Land of plenty Your people you could feed But that year you for foreign greed Land of plenty Your people could not eat Satan's soldiers Collected all your wheat In the name of An ideology That was written To give equality soldiers are killed or wounded by Russian invaders. You can help wounded heroes by joining the Adopt-A-Soldier program of registered charity Ukraine War Amps. A small monthly donation goes very far for medical services and living expenses and creates a special bond between you and a wounded hero. 
100% of your contribution goes to the soldier. Please, adopt a soldier today. Visit ukrainewaramps.ca or find us on Facebook. APL. We help you reach your goals. Thanks to the foresight and generosity of its donors, the Shevchenko Foundation has been investing in the future of the Ukrainian-Canadian community for over 50 years. Since 1963, the Shevchenko Foundation has been funding initiatives that strengthen our Ukrainian-Canadian identity and enhance our Ukrainian-Canadian cultural heritage. These include fine and performing arts and arts groups, museums, cultural centers, education, as well as authors, journalists, and the Ukrainian-Canadian media, including this program. The Foundation strives to become the premier not-for-profit foundation in a Canada which acknowledges the Ukrainian-Canadian community as a fundamental component of Canadian society. Nash Hollis listeners are encouraged to support this vision through continued donations into the future. To apply for grants, make a donation, or for more information, visit ChochenkoFoundation.com. Живою в білий світ, 
and that was Oksana Bilozir, popular Ukrainian singer, with a song that was composed with Holodomor in mind. The song is called Chorna Kvitka, or Black Flower. Up next, from the Nasholos Audio Archives, Ukrainian Food Flare. Hello. In 2003, Peter Boriso of the Hollywood Trident Foundation sent around a recipe for a special borscht to be served on American Thanksgiving in remembrance of the victims of the Holodomor, the famine, genocide in 1932 and 33, during which 7 to 10 million Ukrainians were deliberately starved to death by the Soviet regime. The recipe varies from family to family, but with the one constant being the substitution of yellow beets, also known as golden beets, for red beets. Using yellow or golden beets creates a borscht that is yellow in color rather than red. In Ukrainian culture, yellow is a color often related to mourning. While not common in supermarkets, yellow beets can be found at organic food grocers, such as the Whole Foods Market in California and Island Naturals in Nanaimo. Otherwise, check the internet for online shippers, or plan ahead and grow your own next year, in your garden, or in containers on your patio or balcony. This recipe for remembrance borscht starts with a mushroom broth. If you can find them, use the dried mushroom caps imported from Poland. These are the closest to those that used to come from Ukraine before Chernobyl. Otherwise, try a combination of Italian porcinis, Japanese shiitakes, or whatever you can find. Soak the dried mushrooms for several hours or overnight, then wash them carefully to get rid of any bits of sand and dirt. Add them to a pot of salted water and simmer for several hours. Run the dark water from the soaked mushrooms through a cheesecloth or coffee filter and add to the pot. If you're pressed for time, the ready-made mushroom broth found in organic stores or delis will do. To the broth, add chopped or shredded yellow beets, chopped potato, carrot, onion, mushrooms, and chopped fresh dill. Season with a bay leaf and salt and pepper. There are no rules other than using ingredients that even the poorest peasant would have in his or her bit of garden. If you can't find yellow beets, use a combination of white turnips and a parsnip. Color the broth with a few strands of saffron or a pinch of turmeric. Add your favorite vushka, which are mushroom stuffed mini pierogies, and sprinkle with chopped fresh dill. If you don't have time or skill to make vushka, dried mushroom-filled Italian tortellini are a reasonable facsimile. This is a dish that would be fitting to serve on Holodomor Remembrance Day, which falls, coincidentally, on the Saturday of the weekend of American Thanksgiving. Vichnaya Pamyat. Memory Eternal.
the Ukrainian hymn, Vichnaya Pamyat, Memory Eternal. Up next, another hymn, and this is considered the spiritual anthem of Ukraine, Boże Veleke, God is Great, and it's performed on Bandura by one of Ukraine's many unnamed and unsung heroes fighting on the front. to Knishka Corner, book reviews by Myra Junik, Ukrainian stories in English. In this edition of Knishka Corner, we will be discussing Serge Sipko's groundbreaking book, Starving Ukraine, The Holdemar and Canada's Response. Starving Ukraine is a richly detailed history of Canada's response to the Holdemar. The Great Famine in Ukraine in 1932-33. By examining Canadian newspapers, contemporary letters, and government documents, Sipko paints a shocking picture of famine and death, and the Soviet government's denials of these events. Sipko probes several important questions. What was the nature of the coverage in the Ukrainian language press in Canada? How did the pro-Soviet segment of the Ukrainian community respond to the stories about famine in the Soviet Union? What relief efforts existed among Ukrainians, Mennonites, and others in Canada? How did the Canadian government respond to petitions about the famine? Canadians learned of the famine from a multitude of contradictory sources, including newspaper articles, personal letters, political speeches, and organized events to protest this Soviet atrocity. Serge Sipko's examination of Canada's response to the famine begins with the Edmonton Journal's commentary about a scarcity of wheat in Ukraine in early April 1932. This was the earliest reporting about the Holodomor in the mainstream Canadian press. However, in May, the Toronto Star journalist Pierre von Passen contradicted this report 
by praising Stalin's policy of collectivization and describing living conditions in Ukraine as very satisfactory. Contradictory reports about the Holodomor would continue as the Soviet government covered up its complicity in starving millions of people. Sipko's book is organized chronologically, beginning in 1932 and ending in 1934. Chapter titles are quotations from contemporary documents about the Holodomor. Early chapters such as We Are Starving Terribly and Starvation, Real Cause of Soviet Trial examine the causes and impact of the Holodomor on the Ukrainian people. Later chapters such as What to Believe About Russia and What Are One Million in a Population of 162 Million examine the Soviet cover-up of the starvation. The final three chapters examine the responses of various groups to the Holodomor, including the Canadian government, the pro-Soviet community in Canada, aid groups, and the League of Nations. What did Canadians know about the famine as it was happening? The Soviet Union tightly controlled access to the Ukrainian countryside by foreigners. As a result, information was contradictory, and reports of starvation were dismissed as an overreaction. The Soviet Union refused foreign aid, claiming there was no famine. Despite the fact that the events of the Holodomor were raised in the Canadian press, Canada's response was tentative. However, the response of the Ukrainian community in Canada was more powerful. There were compelling articles in the Ukrainian language press and protests throughout Canada urging Canada to help those suffering starvation. Canadian politicians also urged provincial and federal governments to help the victims of Stalin's collectivization policies. James G. Gardner, leader of the Liberal Opposition in Saskatchewan, made a powerful plea for helping those starving in Ukraine on March the 20th, 1933. Surely the great nations of the world can find a way to get this food to the proper place in the proper way. We must say, these people must not die. Sipko's book is an important contribution to Holodomor studies since it examines how Canada responded to the horrific events. The contradictory newspaper articles about starving people by journalists such as Pierre von Passen and Walter Duranti are shocking. The Soviets were very effective in co-opting the press into reporting what they wanted to hear. However, there were many journalists in Canada, America, and England who spoke out about the Holodomor. This should be a reminder to all of us about the importance of the free press in a time of political turmoil. Starving Ukraine provides readers with detailed contemporary and archival research, as well as an extensive bibliography which would be very useful to anyone doing further research on this topic. Serge Sipko is a coordinator of the Ukrainian Diaspora Studies Initiative for the Canadian Institute of Ukrainian Studies at the University of Alberta. He has published Ukrainians in Argentina, 1897-1950, to The Making of a Community, as well as One-Way Ticket, The Soviet Return to the Homeland Campaign, 1955-1960. to Starving Ukraine should be required reading for anyone who wants to understand the history of the Holodomor and how Canadians responded to this international crisis. Starving Ukraine is available at Chapters Indigo and Amazon. Thanks, Myra. Join us again soon for another edition of Kanishka Corner, book reviews by Myra Junik, here on Nasholos Ukrainian Roots Radio. This is CHMB, AM 1320, Vancouver. And now, Ukrainian Jewish heritage on Nasholos Ukrainian Roots Radio. Discovering unknown and untold stories from the past and present of Ukraine's rich Jewish heritage. 
This is Paulina, producer and host of Nash Holos Ukrainian Roots Radio. Ria Kleiman is a journalist who is little known today in the Jewish or Ukrainian communities, or for that matter, by Canadians in general. But in her day, this intrepid journalist from Toronto reached international acclaim for her coverage of the Soviet Union, including the 1932-33 man-made Ukrainian famine known as the Holodomor and the rise of Nazi Germany. Yaris Balan is the director of the Canadian Institute of Ukrainian Studies at the University of Alberta, where he is also the coordinator of the Cool Ukrainian Canadian Studies Centre. During his research on the Holodomor, Yaris stumbled onto Ria's reports. He was instantly intrigued by her story and began to research her life and work. He has since spoken about Ria Kleiman extensively and is currently working on her biography. Yaris kindly agreed to tell us about his work as well as the work of this remarkable Jewish-Canadian journalist. This interview was recorded in early 2019. So, Yaris, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Now, Ria Kleiman, I just recently found out about her. And how did you find out about her? I mean, it was during your research, but was there some something specific? Because I had done a lot of research, although not as much as you, because I'm not an academic, but I had never heard of her. Well, this is kind of a serendipitous find in the course of doing other research. The cool Ukrainian-Canadian Study Center at CIUS was doing research on the history of Ukrainians in Canada in the interwar period. And uh, we went through archives and various sources, the Edmonton newspapers, the Edmonton Journal, and the Edmonton Bulletin for certain years, in the interwar years. And I specifically chose 1932-33 because I wanted to know what did the Canadian mainstream newspapers report about what was going on in the Soviet Union. The impression is that the community felt that the Soviets did such a good job of suppressing the information that nobody knew about the famine until after the Second World War and when immigrants came from Central and Eastern Ukraine and areas that were affected by the famine who started writing and talking about their experiences. Right. What we discovered shocked us, actually, that there was lots of coverage about the Soviet Union in the Edmonton Journal and the Edmonton Bulletin. Those we had to go through, you know, looking at microfilms, hiring somebody to go page by page by page and pull all the Ukrainian content. But uh, the Toronto Star and the uh, Globe and Mail are now available as searchable databases. So we went into those and found an incredible amount of information. I mean, in the Toronto Star and the Globe, the Star in particular, there were almost every day of the week, there were five, six, seven items related to the Soviet Union. Front page news story, uh, a couple of a human interest story, a letter to the editor, an editorial or an opinion piece all kinds of stuff. And in amongst all of that, there were lots of references to the disaster of collectivization and the problems with the five-year plan, as well as all kinds of spin that presented it all in a very positive light. So there was a mixture of good and bad. When that happened, I also began to realize that depending on the newspaper, the spin was different. So the Toronto Star was very liberal and sort of soft on the Soviet Union. The Globe was more conservative. And I thought, well, you know, at that point, Toronto had five newspapers, including the Toronto Telegram. Mm -hmm. So I I then hired a couple of students at Trent University and said, could you go through 1932-33, page by page, because it's not available searchable, but it's looking at microfilm. Well, these students worked for a month or so and then threw the towel in because you have to really love that kind of research to sit there uh, going through newspapers. I do. But (laughs) one one, one of the students found three or four articles in what was obviously a series by Rhea Kleiman, who I'd never heard of. So uh, after the students threw in the towel, I managed to find some money, and I hired my colleague and friend, Dr. Sidhi Tipkoff, who was the assistant director of CIUS, to go through, first of all, 1933, and that's where we found 21 articles by Rhea about this incredible trip she made through the famine lands as it was billed. And then I had him go back to 1932, and there was another 21 article or 22 article series about her trip that she made just before that to the far north and seeing the prisoners being used as slave labor in the mines and in the forests. And she wrote a series of articles about that. So that was where, where it started. And then from that, I then began doing more digging to find out about her background, who she was, how she ended up there. And the story just became more and more and more interesting. She was a very interesting person. I mean, she was born in Poland, I guess, as a child, came to Canada in that first wave of of immigration from the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And she started out life with a disadvantage. 
Yeah, she came from a very poor immigrant family. We've learned a little bit more literally in the last few weeks even. Her father and mother emigrated in 1906 when she was two years old. And uh, she had two older brothers who were with her as well. And they settled in the north end of Toronto, just north of Dundas Street and uh, just off Young Street, just north of the downtown in a very poor neighborhood. I've got photographs of what the street she lived on looked like in those days. Slum housing, factories, you know, right next door, this kind of thing. So they were dirt poor. Uh, They moved after a number of years, but uh, her early years were were very difficult because she was six years old and she fell under a streetcar trying to get on a streetcar following a Victoria Day parade. And they amputated her left leg below her knee. So she was in and out of hospital for months and actually years because, of course, as she was growing, they had to adjust the prosthesis and stuff. But she was a tough little girl and uh, also obviously very naturally bright. And one of the people who visited her was a man named Robertson, who was the editor and the publisher of the Toronto Telegram. And he was also a philanthropist who supported Sick Kids Hospital, where she was. Okay. And he began talking with her, and he asked her once, you know, what would you like to do when you grow up? He said, I want to be a writer, like a journalist. And he gave her a copy of the Bible, mm-hmm. the King James edition, I guess, and said, you know, read this, you'll learn everything you need to know about writing. <laughs> but she was very determined, and he looked in on her periodically. And then the next horrible thing that happened to her was her father died when she was 11. And that left the mother now with six kids. There's another three were born in Canada. And so Rhea, at the age of 11, went to work in a factory and was taking some classes, you know, in the evening or whatever. Basically managed to then take some secretarial courses when she was a teenager and learned how to be a stenographer secretary, a practical thing, so she could help Mm -hmm. support the family. I've learned since that her mother was actually illiterate. Huh. I just got a few weeks ago a copy of an attempt. She applied to get a Canadian birth certificate in 1927, just before she was going to Europe. And on it, uh, the first thing is she already spelled her name C-L-Y-M-A-N, but the original spelling was K-L-E-I-M-A-N. And they scratched out her C-L-Y name on it. And on the form, her mother, who signed with an X, because it was submitted on her mother's behalf, Mm -hmm. it stated that she was born in Toronto and delivered by a midwife probably to simplify matters. So she got a birth certificate, I guess, saying that she was born in Toronto when in actual fact she wasn't. The application also indicates that her father worked as a junk dealer. So this is, we're talking a woman who grew up in very difficult circumstances, but was very determined and um, she was ambitious and she wanted to see the world. So she moved in 1925 to New York and got a job working for a psychoanalyst. I have a feeling she was either a receptionist or just a secretary. Mm -hmm. She certainly wasn't doing psychoanalytic work. But it was probably while she was in New York that she got involved with radicals of her generation. This was a time when there's all kinds of propaganda about how wonderful the Soviet Union was, women had equal rights. And so a lot of young people, and many of them Jewish women too, uh, were attracted to it. And she set her as her goal. She wanted to go see this new society that was being born uh, across the ocean. So she managed to get a job first in London, working for, of all things, the Alberta government. In London? Uh, do, yeah, doing public relations. So she worked out of Canada House. The Alberta government had an office then, as I believe it still does now, that promotes tourism, investment, awareness of Alberta uh-huh. and Great Britain. And so she worked there for a year. Uh, this is a great job when you think about it. She's gone from New York to London. It's an exciting, big international capital. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, but her goal was to go east. And so she applied and got a student visa to study French in Paris, French language courses at the Sorbonne for three months. And at the same time was teaching English on the side to help pay her expenses. After her student visa ran out, she didn't go back to London, much to the consternation of her friends who thought she was crazy. You know, uh, you've got a great job here, you've got friends here and stuff, but she thought it was too easy. Uh-huh. She pushed on to Germany. Now, this is 1928 now, and the Nazis haven't come to power yet, but they're surging in popularity, and there's clashes between them and the left, the Bolsheviks, the communists. It's a very dynamic time, exciting time. She picked up a bit of German, and while she was in Germany, she got news that the visa that she applied to go to the Soviet Union finally came through, and so she got a copy of her visa in Berlin and jumped on a train on December 28, 1928, for Moscow. Now, there's evidence that she was actually a member of the Communist Party by this time. Hmm. Uh, She might have actually joined it in New York or certainly in Britain. 
There's a reference in some intelligence intercepts to her being a courier for the Communist Party <laughs> uh, activists there. That certainly would have helped her get permission to go to the Soviet Union. But she got her papers. She shows up in Moscow. She's 24 years old. She uh, doesn't speak the language. She knows nobody. She hasn't even booked a hotel or anything. Wow. And she's got $75 or 15 pounds sterling to her name. Huh. Uh, you know, so not a lot of money. She's wandering around the main train station, and this guy notices her and sees that she could use some help. And so he steered her across the street to a hotel where there was a correspondent with a Chicago newspaper who was there with his wife. She spent the first night sleeping in their bathtub. <laughs> and uh, they helped her find a place to stay, and it looks like they also introduced her to Walter Durante of the New York Times. The wow. Mr. Durante. I was just going to say, Harris, like they had that one thing in common was they were both amputees, but their reportage really diverged. Well, when uh, Rhea went to work for him, she went as his assistant. Huh. So she probably did a lot of running around, you know, doing a variety of things. There's an open question because, you know, Durante was an unseemly character. He was into drugs and orgies and yeah. all kinds of things. Yeah. He had all kinds of affairs with young women. In some cases, the women threw themselves at him. It's unclear whether she got the job because she submitted to his advances or not. But she used the opportunity to learn Russian. She had a gift for languages. And she also learned how to craft newspaper stories from him. And mm. after nine months working for him, she was in a position where she could start selling her own stories to newspapers, chiefly the London Daily Express, which was owned by a fellow Canadian, Lord Beaverbrook. Mm. So her stuff started appearing there, but she didn't get a byline. It was just from our special correspondent. It was never identified with her. But she had to navigate the vagaries of dealing with the Soviet censorship you have to be very careful with the stuff, the, the stuff that you sent out of the country because the censor didn't like it. You'd get into trouble. They'd cut stuff or they could kick you out. She was able to do that. So by late 1929, she's already supporting herself freelancing. She moved in with a, an ordinary Russian family in what's called a kommunalka or communal apartment. There were 14 people living in basically three rooms. She had one room to herself. They shared a kitchen. They shared a bathroom. And, of course, she could pay in hard currency because she was paid in pounds. Right. And she had access to stores that foreigners could get access to that regular Russian citizens couldn't. Mm -hmm. So she was able to help them. But it gave her a sense of how, in this worker state, what life was like for an ordinary worker. It was hard. It was brutal. They were you know, living in these horrible conditions. So she really got a rude awakening. It was gradual, and it's it's unclear when she began to see the light. She went thinking that, well, you know, women have achieved the quality here. Yeah. Workers are in power here. They're modernizing. This is the future. Planned economy. This is where the world is going, and they're ahead of everybody. Gradually, she began to realize what a horror story the Bolsheviks were creating there. She decided to make this trip to the far north in 1932 because, of course, there were all these reports about how the Soviets were using political prisoners as slave labor mm -hmm. in the forests, harvesting timber and processing it. And this was a time when Canada was losing its timber market in Great Britain. The Brits were starting to buy a lot of timber from the Soviets because it was cheap. Hmm. And, of course, the argument was is that, hey, well, of course it's cheap. They're using slave labor. How can we compete? And so Canada, under Prime Minister Bennett, mounted a very fierce campaign, first of all, to try to get the Brits and all the Commonwealth countries just to buy timber from fellow Commonwealth countries and to support each other through trade and not buy cheaper stuff from the Soviet Union. Right. So when Rhea went and actually saw physical evidence of slave labor being used, political prisoners being used in precisely this fashion, she wrote a series of articles that she managed to get out to the West without going through the censor. And when they appeared in the West, this really ticked off Soviet authorities. And as well, she eventually ended up writing, I said, 21 articles about that trip that she made. One of the places she stopped at was uh, Petrozavodsk, which is in Karelia, historically finished part of Russia that the Russians grabbed, and still have. And she visited with Finns who were there from Canada and the United States, communist Finns who came to help build this wonderful future society. They'd been working in northern Ontario in the forestry industry and, hmm. and in other places and, and went there and worked. But she describes visiting their communities, but also after Petra's divorce, she took off north to a place called Kem on the White Sea. 
and it's the administrative center for the Solovetsk prison camp, the infamous Solovetsk Island prison that went back to Tsarist times, a hmm. uh, horrible place to be incarcerated, and they had 10,000 political prisoners there, many of them Ukrainian intellectuals, artists, who mm-hmm. had been arrested in 1931-32 by Soviet authorities. But she wanted to go to the island and see for herself. But Kem was a closed city. They didn't allow foreigners in. Right. And she had no permission to be there. But she took the train, and because she was totally fluent in Russian and knew how things work, got off the train, the train left, and it only came every couple of days. So she had a couple of days, she had like three days there, before the next train came. And she uh, got a room and described in very moving terms coming to this hotel and not in the greatest shape. And there's this sort of sad sack woman mopping up the lobby. She asks, you know, where's the disorder now? Where's the, the manager? And she says, well, she's upstairs folding linen. So she went upstairs. She showed her a room, which was classic. You know, the bed was like, you know, sagging mattress, mm-hmm. springs, uh, broken window, dust. Mm-hmm. Uh, but she's sort of great. She was already hardened and used to conditions in the Soviet Union. She was thrilled to get it. And this cleaning lady who was uh, working in the, in the lobby came upstairs to dust and Rhea laughed. It's a nervous laughter. She couldn't believe that she pulled this off, that she, here she was in this closed city. She had a room. As she said, she gate-crashed Kim. Hmm. And this woman who was very sad said, well, you go to tell the world what's going on here, how horrible there are a lot of their women working there whose husbands were in prison hmm. at the train station. Are all these women coming, hoping to catch a glimpse of their husband, which was hopeless, who had been, you know, husbands who had been sentenced to 10, 15 years incarceration and everything. Mm-hmm. It was a really, really depressing place. Yeah. And she saw gangs of thousands of political prisoners being taken off to the forest to harvest wood and stuff. And this is despite the Soviets denying publicly and repeatedly that they use slave labor. So this was very damaging to them that uh, yeah. the story got out with an eyewitness account. Yeah. Rhea got back to Moscow, and two women from Atlanta, Georgia, described as society girls, had decided to go on a great adventure, and their goal was to drive to Moscow and then to drive south to the Central Asian Republics of the Soviet Union. So they arrived in Moscow, and they start planning this big trip. They heard about Rhea and spoke to her, and so these three women get in this car that they packed as with as much food, as spare tires, gasoline, anything that they could get onto this vehicle and headed south from Moscow at the end of August, August 30th. The first night that they spent at Tolstoy's estate in Yasnaya Polyana and uh, through Kursk and they arrived in Kharkiv and it's in Kharkiv where they begin to see evidence of starvation. In the Russian part, there's still food. It wasn't a problem. You could buy food in the markets and everything like that. They get to Kharkiv, and she describes seeing hungry people on the streets. And while she's there, this girl comes up to her when she's in the hotel and introduces herself. My name is Alan Mertza. I lived nine years in New Toronto. My father worked at the Massey-Harris factory there. We came here three years ago because under this ambitious five-year plan of Stalin's, they were throwing up factories everywhere. There's a big tractor factory that they built in Kharkiv, and so they came to work there. But this woman tells her, she says, have you got any bread? We have nothing to eat. Now, this is a foreign worker pleading for food. She goes to the factory, actually, in the morning. They left early in the morning before the restaurant and the hotel was open. They drive to this factory, which she describes as a dump. And it was supposed to produce you know, 150 tractors a month or something. It was producing you know, one-third or a lot less, and a lot of the tractors were breaking down within short time of being put into use. Anyway, she couldn't get in to see the factory. She thought, well, there's foreign workers working here. They always have cafeterias, especially for them. Well, the cafeterias weren't open. They couldn't get any food. So they head south of the city from Kharkiv, and they're driving past these villages, and many of them are empty. There's nobody in them. There's The doors are open to the houses. The windows are open. The curtains are flapping in the breeze. And Rhea then goes, oh, so this is where these so-called kulaks were expelled from, or people fled from the famine conditions. They'd already abandoned them or, or been driven out. And finally, they see a village where there's some activity. They drive in. There's a bunch of women who are basically selling stuff from their garden. And so she goes and she wants to buy some milk and some eggs for the women to have some breakfast. First of all, she starts talking to these women. And nobody understands her. She speaks Russian, but they're all Ukrainian-speaking. Finally, there was this kid who translated and explained that we don't want you to give us eggs and milk. We want to buy some. But they just said, the collective has taken all of our livestock, chickens. We have none of that. 
One woman goes, you know, I live in a neighboring village here. I might be able to scare something up for you. So she gets in the car with them. They drive a couple of kilometers to this neighboring village. And the head of the village comes out. And the village head says, so you've come here from Moscow, yes, to investigate conditions, yes. He says, well, you tell the Kremlin that we are starving. We are good, loyal citizens of the Soviet Union, but they've taken everything. He says, how we're going to survive the winter once the vegetables from the gardens are gone, who knows? And he said, in the spring already of 1932, the children were eating grass like livestock. And the women started undressing the children. And you could see their distended belly and their rickety legs. And you could see the ravaging effects of famine on them. And she had a hard time looking at this. And she describes in her article saying, you know, I had to turn my eyes away. But I made a promise that I was going to tell the world about this. From there, they continued south. I mean, a lot of places, they weren't hotels. So so they go to a sanatorium in Slovyansk. And there's this room with, you know, eight or ten beds. And they said, well, you can sleep here, the three women. But the other women are really curious to talk to her and say, so is it true, you know, you're from the, from America. Is it true that workers have meat to eat and white bread? This is during the Depression. Right. Things were hard here, but workers did far better here uh, in the middle of the Depression, even without a job, than ordinary working people did there. And these women, some of them were there because they were suffering the effects of malnutrition. Wow. Uh, and she describes all of this in great detail in this series of articles. They go across the Kuban. And she describes watchtowers in the corner of these fields and guys with guns sitting there ready to shoot anybody who tries to sneak in and steal a few grains of wheat. Uh, They make it all the way to Georgia, and it's clear they're they're waiting for her. Obviously, the secret police, they were going to kick her out to give her 24 hours to leave the country. But the British embassy intervened. They managed to get permission for her to be sent back to Moscow under escort. And she was given two days to pack her belongings and to leave the Soviet Union. While she was packing up, who visits her? Malcolm Mugridge. I've been speaking with Yaris Balan from the University of Alberta, where he is director of the Canadian Institute of Ukrainian Studies and coordinator of the Cool Ukrainian Canadian Studies Centre. In part two of this interview, Yaris will tell us more about Rhea Kleiman's reporting on the Soviet Union and the Holodomor, and also her astonishing courage reporting as a Jewish woman in Nazi Germany. I hope you find the story of Rhea Kleiman as intriguing as we do. Until next time, Shalom. Join us again soon for another episode of Ukrainian Jewish Heritage here on Nasholos Ukrainian Roots Radio. listening to Nasholos Ukrainian Roots Radio, broadcasting locally in Vancouver and Nanaimo. In between broadcasts, please visit our website, www.nasholos.com. There you'll find transcripts, audio files, podcast links, and information about the show. I'd like to invite you to visit our Patreon site, and you'll find a link there as well. Again, our website is www.nasholos.com. And I'd love to hear from you, so please send your suggestions, dedications, and requests. Your comments are always welcome. Nizhami vshiskin chila nasha prohramu vshichastu domu vizkazati do pobachinya, ale peritiem yo hochu zalashitavas to kimislovami mudrostia. V koho kayetia namaye, toi idalis le postupaya. And our proverb of the week translates as, without repentance, evil continues to spread. And with that, our program has come to an end. We have one last patriotic song for you. This is by Nizhudes. It's called which translates as In the mountains, dark clouds have gathered. I'm Pavlina on behalf of all of us here at Nash Holos and AM 1320. Thanks for listening and Dobranich! <laughs>
Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now.